0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 27th, 2023. And children's literature is in the news today. Uh, A huge furore over the work of Roald Dahl. Um, Lots of controversy on whether some of his work should be edited. Certain words, which are now deemed uh, racist or patronizing or troubling, were planned to have been taken out of his work. So his work was gonna be edited after his death. Um, There was a huge backlash against this. um, Penguin have announced that they're going to publish, quote unquote, the classic Dahl books um, in parallel with the other books. Lots of argument about this. Salman Rushdie, uh, very uh, explicit, s- describing this as absurd censorship. Um, others believe that the publishers are really just in the business of making money, which is probably true. What's certainly true is that children's literature, once outside politics, now seems to be incredibly political, from Florida to Roald Dahl to uh, the work of the the Dilbert cartoons. And I thought it would be a good opportunity. We, we have uh, the honor of talking to one of the world's leading uh, children's books writers, Kelly Yang. She has... Um, uh, she has many books out. Uh, the book probably many of you be most familiar with is Front Desk. Uh, she has a new book out, Finally Seen. Uh, and she's joining us from Washington, D.C. Of course, I do want to talk about Finally Seen, but uh, I'm curious, Kelly, what do you think of this furor over Dahl's work? Um, does it mean that children's literature is by definition political?
1: You know, I, I grew up... Loving doll. I'm going to be honest, I loved, I devoured Matilda, I devoured Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's also also a fact that Raw Dahl is a very controversial figure himself. He has made a lot of statements that are pretty offensive against Jewish people. He's he's not been shy about some of his beliefs. And that's something that is is hard to grapple with sometimes. So I can understand wanting to, to maybe edit some of his books, um, as an author, I will say that I think it is important that we don't edit books. I think that what I'd rather have happen is for kids to read those books and for parents to have a conversation with them and say, you know, why did we at one point, like how how is it that these words are in here? Well, and then talk to kids about, honestly, about the fact that at one point it was okay to call people these names and these words. That this was something that people did all the time. And why is that, has that changed now? Why is that sometimes unkind and maybe not the best thing to do? But I think those conversations are even more valuable than if we just go and, you know, edit out and erase and, you know, clean up. I think that's not really doing anybody any favors. Um, I know that as an author, I would want my books to be preserved in what, They were when I wrote them to reflect what I was thinking, and the reality is, Raldal was a brilliant writer. He also said said some really unkind things.
0: In a Lockean sense, and we're all brought up as Lockeans implicitly or otherwise, children as blank slates. So our responsibility as parents and teachers, educators, writers, is to um, fill that blank space up with something morally decent. Do you think of yourself? Uh, As an educator, as much of of, of a writer uh, in in terms of writing your your best-selling books for kids?
1: You know, it's interesting. First of all, I was a teacher for 15 years. So I don't think that the term educator ever really leaves you when you become one. Um, but as a children's book author, I think I have a special responsibility. You know, as a children's book author, our job is to reflect the world around us, but also think about the world as it can be. So there is that component that we know that we are inspiring young minds. So we are trying to t- tell them something about our universe and make them feel less alone and validating their thoughts and validating their frustrations but we're also kind of shaping a little bit trying to think about a world imagine imagining where we can actually accomplish what we want and get along you know as hard as that sometimes seems um, and i think that that's something that i take really seriously is this double responsibility
0: I grew up like you with Roald Dahl and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Do you, uh, today though, in a post-COVID world, do you think the kids today read similarly to a world of of kids growing up in the 60s or 70s, 80s, even 90s? Uh, Are the children of the 2020s different?
1: I think their expectations are different. I think that when I was growing up, I didn't expect the books to reflect the world around me as much. I didn't have such high expectations. Um, And now I think that kids demand and they should that these books reflect the world. You know, they reflect a diverse world where we have people from all walks of life and we're not talking down on kids. We're being, uh, we're talking to them at their level about big issues because we know they can handle it. We know that they are aware of what's going on in the world and they do care about some of these bigger topics, whether it's book banning or the environment or what's happening all around us. I think they really want us to have those conversations with them.
0: Have you ever accused, have you have you or your work ever been accused of being woke? I mean, I'm not sure if you're even uh, comfortable with the word. Uh, Do you think that, to be a good children's writer these days, y- y- you have to, in a sense, become woke in in its broader meaning.
1: I, I I would love for my books to be called woke because I'm a woke person, and I do think that that is a that's something that I wear with honor. Right, I. And that, to me, that word just means that you're sensitive, that you're sensitive to people's feelings. And why wouldn't you want that as an author? The other thing is, I think that well, I think what you're really trying to ask probably is
0: do we? And write I'm trying to be your- sensitive here, Kelly. I don't want to uh, lose my job by asking the wrong question. I'm joking because uh, I don't have a job, so I can't lose it. But, um, <laughs> you know, everyone's particularly sensitive about these issues, as, as you know better than I do these days.
1: Yeah, so I guess if you're asking, am I writing with a specific agenda, I would say, no, my work is really telling a story. And in this case, in this book, I'm telling a very specific story about an immigrant girl who has a very unique way of coming to the U.S. She's coming to the U.S. without her parents and without her little sister, because they're already here. They've been here for five whole years without her. Um, So she's been this left behind kid all this time. She's been in Beijing with her grandmother and she's just been waiting for them to summon her, to tell her it's time to come. And finally, she gets the call and, and she's got a lot of emotions she's carrying with her. you know, Not just happiness and excitement, but also some frustration and some anger and a deep confusion over why they didn't call earlier for her to come. So I think that that's a very specific experience It's telling a very specific story. It happens to be a girl who doesn't think that anyone understands what she's going through until she picks up a book that makes her feel seen and that book happens to be challenged at her school and now we're diving into book banning so i don't usually yeah. write with any kind of specific agenda but i'm just trying to tell a story about what's going on in the world
0: so in a sense this book finally seen um ad- ad- addresses uh the issue of uh book banning of course ronda DeSantis, who likely to run for uh, for Republican uh, nomination, uh, might be the next American president, has been very explicit in making books and Florida schools and cultural wars the heart of his identity and campaign. Is this, in a sense, your book designed to address this issue?
1: Yeah, it's definitely addressing this issue because it's something that I think about all the time. I was just in Florida and to see the bookshelves empty, not having books, not having kids be able to pick up what book they want and learn about American history. You know, like that's now inappropriate to teach as well. The immigrant experience, the experience of people of color, the black experience, the Jewish experience. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And what, what is what is that doing? What good is that doing? Anybody? right? It's certainly not doing me any good as a parent, because all I want is to be able to prepare my kids for the future. And I know that future is diverse. So why would I want to take away books, which is one of the most important tools to build empathy and make kids understand what it's like to be someone else so that we can all relate to each other a little bit more? Why would I want to take that away?
0: Yeah, if I was a kid's book writer and I wasn't banned in Florida, I would be insulted. I would think I was doing something wrong. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's hard to know the criteria. And, and why do you think, I mean, you're a children's book writer and a former teacher rather than a, a political analyst, but why have men, and it always seems to be men like DeSantis, focused on this issue? Why make children the heart of political life when, as you're suggesting, and as we all know, they're, they're innocents. They haven't formed yet.
1: I think it's a a tactic of tapping into fear and parents have a lot of fear right now they're looking at the world it's changing at this really rapid pace I mean I just flew here from LA where it was hailing you know um, the world sometimes looks like it doesn't make any sense anymore and that's something that a lot of parents feel which is that they're scared of the world, and I'll admit it, there are things that scare me too about the world. There are things that I don't I don't know how to explain, but I wanna be able to have those conversations with my kids because you know what, the minute I say to my kids, nope, we're not even gonna talk about it, I've lost their respect. I've completely lost my role as the person they can come to and talk about anything with. And it's okay as a parent to admit to your kid, I'm scared, I don't have all the words, I don't know how to talk to you about all of these things. But that's what we have books for, is that they're conversation starters, we can figure it out together, we're not afraid. And so I really think that even as powerful as fear is, empathy and love and understanding, hopefully those will be even more powerful as a motivator.
0: Kelly, we've done a lot of shows on what uh, one uh, Columbia University historian May Nye calls the China question, gold rushes, migration and race and racism, particularly Chinese people in, in America. There's a huge uh, debate about it, about our relationship or America's relationship with China. Some, like Isaac Stonefish, yeah. are deeply hostile to Chinese culture. One, another headline today is that the uh, COVID was, pro- at least according to the Times, which, who we usually trust on these sorts of things, that the lab leak was most likely caused um, most likely caused the, the COVID pandemic, the, the Republicans already erupting over this. Um, as, a, as a writer focusing on, um, uh, on East Asia, your, your, as you say, your new book, Finally Seen is about a young Chinese girl coming to America. Are you particularly concerned these days about anti-Chinese, anti-Asian uh, racism? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I'm 100% concerned about that. I'm concerned for my own safety. Just look at the number of anti Asian hate crimes that are still happening, right, that are happening in our communities and just it's, it's It's just heart-wrenching to see, and with headlines like that, that just makes it even more important that we have stories like finally seen so that when you're growing up as an Asian-American kid in this country, you don't feel so alone. You don't feel like you have to hide your identity because so many people are upset with you over things that have nothing to do with you. You know, we as Asian-Americans did not cause COVID. That's ridiculous, and yet every day there are people who say these horrible things things at us. You know, so I think it's even more important that we have books like this to make kids feel less alone.
0: And meanwhile, there seems to be a lot of very prominent Americans peddling one kind of race war or another. Another of the headlines today is the dropping by a number of United States newspapers of Dilbert cartoons because Scott Adams made some very explicit uh, racist comments. Meanwhile, Elon Musk, who now owns perhaps the biggest Uh, or amongst the biggest social media platforms, Twitter, um, suggests that uh, there's a race war between black Americans and whites and Asians. What do you make of that kind of troublemaking by a man who should know better, Elon Musk?
1: I didn't read the comment, but I would just say that it seems like Elon Musk will say anything these days to get any kind of attention. And that's, that's disappointing because I think he does have a platform. And as someone, anyone who has a platform, you should re- use it responsibly. And I hope that what's happening in our country is something that can unite us, you know, again, to, to make sure we understand that we're all, we are all here together with the same dreams and the same hopes, with so much in common. And there's so much at stake here if we're not allowed to have these stories. It's so, there's, it's heartbreaking for all of us you know when one of us gets banned it's heartbreaking for the entire industry it's, it's heartbreaking for generations of kids so i definitely do not want to have anything to do with elon musk's comment
0: yeah well, he said you're not gonna not that he'd want to come on my show but he's certainly not invited um <laughs> kelly uh, obviously your books are designed for kids but would you like grown-ups to, to read something like finally see yeah. to of course parents will because they'll Read them to their kids, but um, particularly in terms of uh, front desk, which was a huge bestseller. Did you get a lot of response from grown-ups too, older readers?
1: Absolutely. I have emails every day from all different ages of people. I've I got emails from um, a Vietnamese American who's 71 and she immigrated here and she feels for the first time at 71 seen through front desk. That just warms my heart. That's so wonderful. I get emails from kids, of course. I get emails from parents. And and even, kids, and even adults who don't have kids, just reading it for the first time, seeing their immigrant experience reflected, or maybe understanding kind of a little bit more of what their parents had to go through. And that's the thing. It's a, the American dream, right? And it's something that we can all relate to.
0: You talk about, Kelly, the American dream. Does that distinguish America, in your view, ideally from other countries, maybe from China, which is perhaps historically less welcoming of immigrants and and many other countries in Europe and Asia. Uh, Should America be distinct, unique in terms of its ability and willingness to welcome people from overseas uh, as new citizens, as new residents?
1: I think that the American dream in this country has historically always been about being tolerant, and being welcoming of new people and new ideas. I mean, that is really one of the founding principles of this country and we cannot forget that. Um, And the other thing that I think is really important that goes along hand with that dream is to safeguard these freedoms. That is what makes this country so unique is that we can come here and say whatever we want, which is really one of the reasons why people move here and just why my parents moved here. Um, So we can't let that go. And what's happening with the book banning is we're coming really dangerously close to letting that go, to not having that anymore, where it's inappropriate to talk about anything anymore. Can't talk about the Holocaust, can't talk about, you know, current events. And then what are we, what have we become as a country? How then how are we then different from other countries?
0: One of the, and I'm maybe searching for. Uh, uh, optimistic, positive things to come out of this. But one thing that it all does suggest is the books still matter. You know, the CD died. Uh, people don't go to the movie theater anymore, but people are still buying books. The books as a medium, as a form, remains, if anything, as vibrant, perhaps more vibrant than ever. I, I wonder why, Kelly? Is it simply because it's a, a 500-year-old medium?
1: You know, it's a great question. I think about that one a lot too, especially in this day and age where we have this just endless fast content, right? Just two second, five second, six second TikToks. And why do people still read? I think there's something really special in diving into a longer, deeper story you know, just like what we're doing right now, where this is so special compared to a lot of the uh, other interviews I've had to do because they were so quick, but we're able to have a longer conversation. And if you think about it that way, a book is something so long. Um, it's like 200, 300 pages. That's a time for you to get immersed in someone else's life and someone else's experience. And there's something so special about that, that um, I, I, I think it transcends all these trends and, and things that are
0: whatever, trendy now. <laughs> We've done a number of conversations also, uh, Kelly, about um, AI and its impact on writing. We did one with Stephen Marsh, a Canadian writer, suggesting that AI can be the friend of a writer. Others with Steve Rubin, who used to run a big New York publishing house, who believes that it will never be relevant. Could you imagine AI helping you? I mean, you're a, you're a best-selling writer. You've, you've, you've written... Um, a and, and, and number of books, uh, the new book, um, uh, Finally Seen. I assume you wrote by hand. You didn't have any help from Chat GPT. Could you imagine AI being valuable? Um,
1: I, I, I think it can be very valuable in a lot of different ways. For example, maybe just coming up with content for social media. But in terms of the actual narrative of writing, I mean, unless... AI becomes exceptionally human, which I I don't see happening in the way that it's able to craft a entire story. Uh, Maybe it can help you find adjectives. I don't know if you took like the actual act of writing and just chopped it down into so many tiny little pieces. Uh, But then if you can't come up with the adjectives, are you like, why are you in the writing industry then? (laughs) So I, I I don't know how helpful it'll be. But I think I am really worried about how it's impacting art. For example, I have photography friends, photographers who are really impacted by AI and the ability, the fast ability to generate um, realistic-looking photographs without having to do a photo shoot. So I am very worried about how it's impacting creators in general. But in yeah,
0: terms- man, yeah Nick Cave the a brilliant um, singer-songwriter, was very critical. The chat GPT downloaded all his lyrics and then reproduced them, and he said the reproduction was pretty pathetic. I assume you could do the same thing with K- Kelly Yang books. I mean, uh, this um, uh, this this AI engine is um, is hungry for content, and it's digesting everything, eating everything that it can find I mean, if it downloaded all your books from, from, from uh, you know, finally seen to front desk to all the others, could it learn your style, do you think? Or, or would it always be inadequate, artificial?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I, we, that remains to be seen, right? How intelligent AI can get at the present moment. It, it cannot, I I don't, I can, I think we can tell the difference. And I think that is sort of like the Turing test is, can you tell the difference? I think that my fans can tell the difference right now, but in the future, how intelligent it can be. But then if we get to that level of intelligence, I don't, I don't think any job is safe. And I think the other thing that we have to think about is why are we doing this? Are, why are we actively trying to manufacture, you know, our own, um, obsoleteness, I guess, if, you know, if we think yeah, about. So maybe, uh,
0: maybe your next book, Kelly, can be about this.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, I that's what, about.
0: Uh, why are we manufacturing our own obsoleteness? I think that's uh, a perfect way of putting it. What about the reader? Um, could we create bots as readers as well? What's so human about your readers? You talked about your fans. What makes them fans rather than smart machines, Kelly?
1: I think that they can feel. You know, and I don't I don't know if an AI can feel. I don't think they can feel. Well, there I was an, an AI, AI
0: this AI weekend that claimed it could feel, but uh, who knows whether it really can. I mean, any any machine can tell you it feels whether it right. can manifest or articulate or prove it is another issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right now I think that the fact that humans can feel, they feel a connection, they can feel a connection to me and to each other, that's the thing. That is the that is the thing that I'm gunning for. That's what I'm trying to get. And I, I don't know how a machine can replicate that.
0: Feeling is, of course, the thing in itself when it comes to the human condition. What is it about today, Kelly? And you deal with a lot of kids as a former teacher and now as a children's writer. Why why are kids so much more anxious? I mean, I can understand post-COVID in terms of isolation, loneliness, but, but where, what, what what is driving the anxiety that seems to have afflicted a whole generation? It doesn't mean that all kids are anxious, but the anxiety levels seem to have written, risen dramatically.
1: Well, I just look at what kids are doing these days, right? They're all on their smartphones. And with that, it used to be when I was growing up, yeah, people would tease me for my clothes because um, my mom would buy me these thrift store clothes that didn't look great. But it would end at 3 p.m. You know, I would get to go home and have this whole anxiety-free experience of just being me at home. But now, you know, kids, they take the stuff home and it just never ends. And it's this constant seeing everybody all the time, comparing yourself to their house, to their car, their clothes, their dog, you know, their experience, even when they're on vacation, even in the summer, it never ends. So we've actually been taking like technology-free vacations as a family, just put everything down. How old are
0: your kids?
1: I have a, a 15 and a half year old, a, a 13 year old, and a 10 year old.
0: Wow, well, I bet they weren't happy about that at first, at least.
1: No, and you know what? We didn't even tell them until they were in the car, and then we secretly snuck it out of their bags and just left it and sped away and <laughs> just literally sped away because it's so hard. And you actually see the, the effects. It almost seems like someone who's addicted. Um, you know, they're, they're really they're really unhappy at first, but then they relax and they get to talk to you as a family and you get to bond again and have that deeper connection. And I think that's the thing I want people to have is that deeper connection.
0: Well, you certainly do that, Kelly Yang, with, uh, with your work. Um, you, you, you're banning social media in the car, but I'm assuming you still let them read books.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes, they're allowed to bring the books.
0: Um, and why a final question, Kelly, you know, some people might say, particularly in Silicon Valley, well, books are just another form of media. What's the difference between books and Instagram or books and TikTok? And And as you suggested, you are in a sense trying to educate, you're trying to fill their minds with good stuff.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, get, I get that argument, but I, I think that there's some, a fundamental difference. Um, first of all, books are longer and they allow you to immerse yourself fully in an experience. It's like the old days of watching a movie with your family. The problem now is we put a movie on and everyone is still on their devices and they've got like five screens in front of you competing against the movie. And it's hard to even watch a movie with your family. So I think that when a kid puts, you know, picks up a book and literally just sits there and reads there's nothing more priceless it's such a it's such a great experience it's such a nurturing experience it's something we really have to protect as parents